Welcome to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact, episode 117. I am your host, John Little. Uh, You might have noticed there's a new introduction to the program today. I worked with Ben Sperling, the uh, original announcer, to redo that. I wanted to tighten it up, make it a little bit shorter, a little bit uh, fresher, and also, you know, there there was some outdated information in the earlier earlier voiceover that uh, we needed to refresh, but highly recommend working with Ben. Uh, He made the process really easy. We turned it around in just really just a few hours. Uh, and you can find him at bensperlingvo.com. Today is Friday, but uh, we had to delay the typical Thursday uh, evening counterintelligence chat with William Tucker by a day due to some conflicts. Uh, but he is back, and uh, we have a lot to talk about. Oh, as always, thanks for having me. It's been a busy week. China is kind of all over the place again. Uh, but different kinds of stories this week. I, you know, I guess one of the biggest ones is uh, uh, an NYPD officer was uh, nabbed, um, acting as uh, an agent for the Chinese, developing intelligence sources uh, in the Tibetan community, monitoring the Tibetan community and the Chinese community um, in his region. You know, I think a lot of people were surprised to see that it was NYPD officer, but that's actually, uh, if you're thinking about it from the Chinese perspective, that's a really, really good target for them. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about NYPD is that they actually have an uh, international reach. Uh, For those of you that are familiar with uh, terrorism, some of the terrorist attacks, for instance, in London, uh, over the past uh, decade or so, um, NYPD was the first foreign law enforcement agency on the scene for some of these attacks over there. So that just gives you an idea of how uh, how extensive their liaison branch is. And they've also worked with, uh, or I should say, work with the U.S. intelligence community, um, which is obviously mostly federal, mostly federal agencies. It's what we call the intel community. Um, I know we have things like fusion centers and whatnot that kind of integrate state and local um, law enforcement into uh, kind of into a broader threat picture. But uh, uh, with NYPD, it's more of a, uh, a direct connection with some of these agencies. So it, it's it's kind of interesting to see this kind of a case, however, because uh, this guy, uh, this insider was doing a few things. He wasn't just monitoring the Tibetan community, uh, even though he's ethnically Tibetan himself, but he was also acting as an access agent. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, he was, um, helping the, uh, the PRC, uh, gain access to some of his higher ups, kind of acting as an intermediary, uh, just kind of not necessarily to recruit, although he was doing some spotting as well from the, uh, from the indictment. But, um, yeah, he was he was just setting up meetings, trying to uh, make sure that his handlers had access to, you know, some of the some of those higher ups, some of those people that are in uh, um, uh, pol- the set policy, things like that. So this is uh, this is a good catch. Uh, there's going to be a lot of damage there, but um, yeah, it just shows you that it's not always about uh, that economic or industrial espionage. There's also the traditional 
uh, traditional approach that China uses. Yeah, this is your classic stuff. And and just to reiterate, like NYPD stands alone when it comes to uh, police forces and their connection to uh, you know the U.S. intelligence community and their international reach. I mean, obviously, all that sprung up out of out of nine eleven. But it's, uh, I mean, it's a really attractive target, and the damage there could could be more significant than a lot of people think. Yeah, you know, New York is also, you know, uh, obviously a global financial center, um, and anything that uh, that NYPD is going to touch in there is going to be pretty much across the board of what happens in New York. So it's not just your your pickpockets or your average everyday crime. There's going to be a lot of other things that the NYPD is going to be touching in there that is certainly going to be of interest to foreign intelligence services. So like I said, this is this is really a good get and uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully it kind of wakes a few people up to, to really understand that those insider threats um, can be quite uh, quite broad in their target set of what they are looking for. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I know NYPD does have an insider threat program. And um, like I said, it's it really comes down to uh, <laughs> the old paradigm of, of uh, counterintelligence. Uh, do we have a good program because we caught a guy or a bad program because one got in? And then there's the the other side of that is if we haven't caught anybody, does that mean we have a good program um, to keep people out or a bad program because we're not catching anybody? It's a, it's really no win deal, but uh, uh, it's it's the game. Again, like every time we see these kinds of threats, that's one of the things we call out is you know it's never just one; it's never in isolation, and every one of these is a, is something that. Uh, that other agencies can look at, other police forces can look at, especially if they have, you know, these pop, you know, huge populations in their area um, or other types of, you know, similar frameworks. Um, you know, this is a this is a chance for you to maybe rethink things and and take a look at your security, look at take a look at insider threats. Yeah, and one of the good things you can do, and I'm I'm sure most are aware of this, so this is kind of more for public consumption, though, is if you live in any sort of major city that ha- that hosts uh, your embassies or consulates, um, you know, the more that are there, the bigger the threat picture that that's going to be there for for collection. Especially if, uh, for you know, I know I know we discussed China a lot, but China is a good example of this. You know, a lot of consulates, a lot of cultural centers. Um, and there's going to be a lot of populations that China is going to look to exploit. And, and like in this, this case, they were keeping an eye on um, uh, Tibetan dissidents. But it's not just Tibetan dissidents. There's a lot of other um, uh, dissidents that they like to keep an eye on. So if you do have those communities, um, and as law enforcement officer, you're sworn to protect them, it's, it's a good idea to understand that threat picture that, hey, there is a foreign intel service that is going to try to exploit these communities. and uh, you know, a good insider threat program within your organization can help mitigate some of that threat. You know, we, we tend to think in terms of like systems and national security risk, but the personal risk to folks in the Tibetan community that were interfacing with this guy is, you know, it's pretty substantial. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of personal damage that these people leave in the wake too. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, this is tough because there's, there's going to be a negative, um, 
impact within the Tibetan community itself yeah. is that there's always that, well, here's one of our own guys buying on us and uh, is he the only one? So there's going to be a little bit of recrimination there and uh, some unfortunate negative thoughts, but uh, you know, it's, it's something every community has to grapple with that. Yeah. San Francisco, uh, springs to mind um, immediately when I thought about this. Uh, if there's any other city in, in the country where uh, this is likely to be repeated, probably at some scale, uh, that would be it. Yeah, there's uh, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. Um, all come to mind. and we Yeah, Houston. <laughs> but, you know, uh, in the lead up to the 2008 Olympics, we know that there was um, uh, not only was it uh, – MSS and some of their local counterparts, even their state police, were had uh, were here in the states, had people undercover at some of these protests, uh, just profiling dissidents, and we know they were here. So it's uh, it shows you just the extent that some of these uh, these countries are are willing to go to to keep an eye on things. So uh, on a brighter note, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about for weeks here, um, if not years, is the problem with um, espionage activity at U.S. universities, in particular how it relates to China. And uh, the FBI director came out, uh, I think it was this week or late last week, and and basically just announced that uh, they're seeing significant progress in getting universities to cooperate on that front. Yeah, that's that's certainly some fantastic news. Um, uh, I don't want to say it was inevitable, but there's a point where um, with the FBI either indicting people or looking at disruption, that these universities were going to have to buy in in one way or another, um, not just to protect themselves, but uh, to protect their to protect some of their staff and whatnot that they may not have been aware had these connections. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this really is fantastic news because this will also protect a lot of students. Um, and why I mentioned students, China has of course targeted ethnic Chinese students to act as agents. Um, and that's quite unfortunate because they don't come over here with that intention, obviously. So it, it, it'll help shut down that avenue of exploitation too. Yeah. That's one of the things we've talked about, right. Is, is one of the unfortunate potential side effects of, of countries like China spying at scale is that you see so many of these cases that it sort of builds momentum and turns into, um, you know, it can turn into like a witch hunt, right? Like you can, you end up painting folks with a broad brush, which we don't want to do. And it's really, really challenging when, um, when, when they are operating at the scale, right? Tons of innocent people end up getting caught in the crossfire. Yeah. And which actually undermines the, your insider threat or your counterintelligence programs, believe it or not. That's, yep. that's why I, you've heard me say it. I don't know how many times we, you focus on behavior and that's always the giveaway. But yeah, it's, it, it does. Um, it can undermine your programs by uh, just giving you tunnel vision. Um, and, and it does happen. It, it is understandable when you're looking at a threat like this, as broad as it is. But um, yeah, so I mean, overall, this really is good news for both U.S. universities and the FBI and uh, in their, in their drive to counter this uh, this collection effort. Yeah. So now I'm wondering if over the next like two months, we're going to see, you know, three or four more different police officers around the country uh, getting, getting wrapped up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, and, that, and you know, it's tough uh, 
with with police in particular because they do have to talk to so many people. They do touch everything. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, like with this NYPD case, um, you know, it, it took a obviously took a while to, uh, to build this and put this together and, uh, get the proper warrants because if you can, you can see it in the indictments and the, uh, the transcripts of the phone calls between the uh, PRC agents and this NYPD officer. Um, so it's, it, it, there might be some lessons learned, some good tools to use for a lot of these law enforcement agencies to, uh, to start applying them to their, you know, at home just to see if they have a problem or not or hopefully avoid it altogether. Um, you know, education is one of the biggest steps in, uh, in any program. So, um, that's, that's a good place to start as any. Yeah. Espionage is like cancer. Uh, nobody ever wants to get the news, but early detection is better. That's the truth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and other you know, Chinese spying activity. Um, and the list just keeps, keeps growing. We have a, um, a head of a, um, of a think tank, uh, a former MI6 guy, uh, Fraser Cameron. He runs the uh, EU Asia Center uh, think tank. He's been accused of passing information about the EU to two uh, spies uh, acting as journalists. Yeah, this is a this is kind of an interesting case, and there's really, uh, even though there's there's a number of reports on it, they really don't carry the detail of information that uh, that's helpful. So basically what happened is this guy's former MI6. Um, he's running this, uh, this EU Asian or was it EU Eurasian uh, think tank? EU Asia. EU Asia. That's right. Uh, smaller think tank. Yeah. And so you had two agencies here. You had MI6 in UK and you had Belgium counterintelligence open up an investigation into this guy. And they actually told him he's under investigation. Uh, there, you know, no criminal complaint yet, nothing like that. And he, he, his response uh, was it was absurd because he doesn't have access to sensitive information. Um, for one, because he's been out of the he's been out of MI6 for almost thirty years, I think. Um, and the other one is, as a head of a think tank, he's going to have a lot of uh, different connections out there. So it would be natural for him to speak to any number of people. So all of this. Uh, certainly could be true. Um, but however, when you have so many different people that you speak with, especially if they're coming out of a, um, and it's some sort of intelligence organization, they may be more comfortable in disclosing certain, certain things to you that may not be classified, classified per se, but they may be, uh, not suited for public consumption. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Right. And, and, you know, and he may not have known the difference in some of that, I think by experience, he would, he probably would, but there's some things, some newer things that you may not be familiar with. And in just talking to some of these other contacts, you know, he may have said too much, but I think part of me is leaning towards, he's just kind of one cog in a, in a bigger wheel here. That the reason why he was told he was under investigation is because they're probably focusing on the other side of that, the uh, the PRC agents that were acting as reporters. Um, that may be part of it. There may be also a bit of a warning in there because I doubt very much if you have two people working as uh, as report, reporters as cover, they don't have just one contact. I can guarantee you that. Right. So so across the EU, they're going to be looking at a number of. Uh, uh, other people that may have had contact with them. 
And it's just one way of trying to either disrupt a network or try and flesh it out a little bit. Who's talking to who, you know, those, what we call association matrices. Yeah. And that's, uh, and if you don't know what that means, so think of the old school, uh, bulletin board with pictures and you have the red, uh, yarn connecting people to people. Um, we do that digitally now, uh, thankfully, but, um, yeah, that's, that's probably what they're trying to put together. Uh, and of course there's also the bigger geopolitical picture. Um, I think it was up until last year, Belgium, uh, with UK's, uh, or excuse me, UK was Belgium's largest trading partner within the EU. Um, so both of these two nations have obviously had to adapt to Brexit. And now that UK has to renegotiate all these trade deals, uh, China being one of them, China is obviously going to want to know, hey, what are their vulnerabilities? How desperate are these guys? Um, and that's, that's pretty normal stuff. Anybody would want to know that. And you really don't have to conduct a, uh, an elaborate intelligence um, um investigation to try and figure that out it's, it's just who's talking to who what are they saying type of deal but um that's it's kind of what this thing is i think but uh as uh, as it goes on I, I certainly want to see some more details on it the commonality between both of these cases is it's really comes down to like access and networks right you don't always yeah, have to yeah. be buried at the heart of it with a security clearance to have, um, to have, you know, it's, it comes down to your access and who you know and your networks. And uh, intelligence agencies are more than happy to work the fringes of that and scoop things up. Yeah. And I can see maybe from China's perspective, they, they may have felt more, a little more comfortable trying to flesh things out with some guys working undercover um, because maybe. Maybe uh, some EU or somebody in UK just didn't feel comfortable speaking directly to the Chinese diplomats ahead of these negotiations. So, I mean, there's a number of things at play here. So, uh, like I said, I, I would be most curious to see details in the future of kind of how this thing shakes out. If we get to see them. If we get to see them. We might. You never know. Right. Well, I think it, a lot of that depends on what was happening in this case, right? Like if it's a, you know, if it was a concerted effort with a lot of co-conspirators, um, then, you know, there's going to be more to come. But if they were just trying to disrupt, um, you know, this network that had sort of inadvertently come together and was going, you know, posing risk, then maybe not. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Well, uh who knows what will be uncovered in Chinese espionage next week? Um, <laughs> it's kind of unprecedented, right? I mean, I've, I've, I can't remember a period in recent history where we've had just this constant drumbeat of cases. Um, uh, you know, there, I am sure there were periods of the Cold War where where it was this focused, but um, you know, this this seems um, this seems unique to me. Yeah, I. I was actually thinking about that too, and I actually pulled some old uh, some old volumes out of uh, um, dealt with history in the Middle Ages, and uh, oh, you, you know, went, Venice. Deep. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have a bad habit there. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was looking at uh, uh, kind of uh, the v Venetian Secret Service from uh, back during the Venetian Empire, if that's what you want, or trade empire, if that's what you want to call it. They were they were pretty active and they had people everywhere. So they were pretty, uh, pretty aggressive. Um, and I would say that was almost probably akin to uh, what we see today, but I, I can't say if it was at the same volume. 
I mean, obviously there's, you just don't have the documentation. Um, but you, you do get a sense that this was, uh, this was a big deal for them back in that day. But yeah, is is but overall, no, I, I can't think of anything at this, at this volume, at this level that uh, we see coming from China. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you should, you bring that up because we might have to devote an episode to that at some point, because I haven't done, I haven't done reading on intelligence in that period in a long time, but I did a lot of it at, at one point. And it's amazing how much literature there is out there written in that period on, you know, on intelligence activities. And it's, it's really interesting stuff because it's pure human intelligence and, uh, uh, it, you know, a tremendous amount of it still applies today. Oh yeah. I mean, if you really want to get into, uh, even say, uh, during diplomatic negotiations, I think the 30 years war is really instructive in that, um, you know, the, the peace of Westphalia and, uh, um, because that wasn't like a singular treaty. People call it the Treaty of Westphalia. It really wasn't. But there's uh, all these different cities and different nations meeting um, and, you know, running back and forth. So there is, there is certainly a lot of attempts to uh, intercept that, even that at, at that time, those, those dispatches to try and understand what do these guys want? What are they willing to negotiate, et cetera? Uh, everybody's looking for an edge. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And it's certainly nothing new. Yeah, and you know, human nature hasn't changed at all. Um, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, all the um, all the failings and tactics, and uh, uh, a lot of the tradecraft, really, at a, at a fundamental level, really hasn't hasn't changed a lot. No, it's uh, you know there are a lot of uh, younger folks, like students, university level, uh, who who write me and listen to this program or they want to get into the intelligence field, and you know I they always ask like, how do I learn this stuff? And I always hate having to tell people to read, <laughs> uh, but you know there's just really nothing better that you can do uh, outside of getting you know enlisting in the military and. Uh, getting formal government training in um, in the field um, outside of just reading on these topics and moving beyond popular culture and recent history, going into the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War has been there's tremendously instructive material on the Cold War, but then you know going way beyond that, uh, like we're talking about now, because it really can open up. Uh, tremendous number of insights and how this works and how people think and uh, you know all of it still applies yeah I, I I mean that's the truth but yeah there's there's some great historical books out there that uh, that, that won't kill you because I know some <laughs> of these can get very very tedious but uh, you know there's some good things out there maybe I'll start digging through through some of the things that I have you know it's funny uh, we were just talking about uh, Christopher Ray and his uh, you know talking about progress with US universities so I want to say, God, it's been 10 years now. Um, the director of FBI counterintelligence, I think back in 2010, was actually talking about this same issue where he was trying to uh, convince these colleges, that, hey, you have a problem. Here's what we can do to help. And he was told to go pound sand more, <laughs> more than once, probably twice. <laughs> but uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him at one time, and he gave me a book called uh, – FBI counterintelligence that you can find on Amazon. And it's an excellent read. Um, it's one that you can read in, in, 
in chunks. It's, but it's, uh, it's, it is, it's a, it's a great read and it's a good introduction into what the FBI does. Um, and there's also plenty of things on there out there for, uh, uh, CIA. There's a lot of good foreign intelligence reads. Um, not too long ago, I saw that the a former director of Indian intelligence, the research analysis wing, had written a book with his Pakistani counterpart. And I have not had a chance to read it, but I have heard a few good things about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, that was really, uh, really surprising to see something like that. So there are some good reads out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's, we need to do that. We need to, uh, we'll talk offline and, uh, I mean, there's constant demand from, uh, listeners, um, and blogs of war readers for reading lists and things like that. And I usually refer them to the CIA library online. CIA.gov has a lot of yeah, resources out there. So I just want to make a point with that. So you have the online CIA library that's not to be confused with the other CIA library <laughs> where you actually have archivists and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are uh, classified publications within the agency. Um, but even some of those have been declassified and published. And if you get a chance, some of them are very well written. And again, they're not going to bog you down with details, but they do give you some good information about uh, certain cases and whatnot. And uh, these DOJ, uh, these indictments, uh, they're, I mean, they're really instructive reading as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just for this NYPD officer case in point, you know, it's a PDF, 24 pages, but it does, it, and it's it, it pretty quick read. Um, but it does, it, it just gives you an outline of how these, uh, how these work, um, what the investigating agencies have to do, what they have to prove to get certain warrants, et cetera. Um, and you can kind of pick that up along the way as you read a few of these indictments. It's like, oh, okay, so that's how that works, you know. Um, and, you'll, and you'll get a, a stark difference between what you read in the indictments and what's usually in the media. Um, because the media, obviously, they're, they're, they have to sell a story. So if they get down into the weeds too much, you know, it might turn off readers. So they want to hit highlights and whatnot. So uh, it's, it's, it's not a surprise that you're going to see a little bit of a discrepancy there or certain information right. that wasn't reported. Um, so don't take that as a criticism. That's just the nature of things. But yeah, so definitely hit DOJ, look at some of these indictments. Um, and, you know, there's a neat function on DOJ too. So anybody that's registered as a foreign agent, you can click on that link and you can actually search that too. So um <laughs> So if uh, so, yes, that that is U.S. law. If you're a foreign agent, you do have to register. Um, but yeah, so there, it's it's a pretty broad website, and you can read quite a bit about it. But there's, uh, God, um, some other ones. I know the U.K. has actually done a pretty good job of uh, publishing a lot of intelligence information out there uh, from their perspective too, uh, and some of that actually goes back. Um, uh, quite a ways. I mean, they do have a lengthy history, so there is a there's a lot to go through there. That's actually kind of fun reading. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah, there was a period where I just I consumed everything. Um, uh, but these days, almost all of my reading is work focused, uh, and I just cut through things like a buzzsaw, and none of it's for enjoyment or um, you know, it's just um, sort of uh, work has taken over. Uh, all that bandwidth. Uh, so it's hard for me to, to, you know, recommend new books and things like that. But um, yeah, let's, um, we should put our heads together and see if we can come up with some, some out of the box, uh, you know, 
books that aren't typically recommended. Again, like CIA.gov has great lists, and you can you can find others out there. But um, as we were mentioning earlier, there's a lot of historical works and things like that that don't typically make these lists that that could be really helpful for folks, if not just yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, you know, and I just just remembered. I think I may have mentioned this at one time, but like uh, take take Kim Philby for example. Yeah. Um, uh, I was on the uh, CIA website because I was just kind of curious, and they do book reviews too. So uh, a lot of these intelligence books, you know, there's somebody in that library does this, but some poor archivist actually did a count, and he came to the realization that there's about 200 books written on Kim Philby. Um, or the Cambridge Five, kind yeah. of that whole that whole deal. So that's, I mean, that's really astonishing. And how do you how do you kind of sort through that kind of stuff? And um, how do you know what's real, what's not? So yeah, it's it's a great website, great resource to to kind of comb through and uh, uh, get an idea because those book reviews are usually pretty good. So uh, yeah, definitely worth your time. There's a documentary about him. Um... What is the name of it? Is it? I think it's the spy who went into the cold. It interviews a lot of folks around that. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, I'll have to look that up. And uh, yeah, I have to go through and see what I have. I, yeah, I, I'm not sure on that one. I think the reason why is because I was just actually looking at a book that was kind of covered his younger years when he was at Cambridge, and they're trying to identify where his uh, ideals came from. But um, so yeah, it's it's funny. You read one book, and all of a sudden, you know, a lot of other things. Are like, wait, where did I read that other? Thing? Oh, I know. That's that's my problem uh, yeah. too. When people ask for yeah. this, it's like, oh man, I'm sorry. It's just all, <laughs> it's all blended together now. So I have no idea. Yeah, where I read it, that. Yeah, and if there's a term that comes to mind, it's called rabbit hole. And yeah. <laughs> when you come read on intelligence, it's it'd be very easy to go down a rabbit hole. So yeah, yeah it's but it's it, it's not boring. There, so there is that. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. And it, it, your learning never ends, right? It's just so complex. And there's so many human factors and, and other issues. And, and now, like, technology factors to a massive extent that uh, you can just constantly uh, learn something new and pick up new insights. And unfortunately for people, uh, if you don't like to read, I think it's going to be hard to advance uh, advance in this. But uh, if you do like to read, then there's a massive amount of material for you. More than you yeah, could ever that, consume. <laughs> that's very true. All right. Well, uh, thanks for catching up this week. And apologies to everyone for delaying a day. I don't uh, think we'll be, all be okay. And we'll, we'll be back Thursday. Yeah, I look forward to it. You have been listening to the Covert Contact Podcast from blogsofwar.com. You can reach John at covertcontact at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening.